Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. That's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org everywhere. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com air. Why would you want to put a tiny striped cape on a termite? There are reasons. Besides the fact that it's absolutely adorable. I'm sci-fi producer Charles Bergquist. It's Tuesday, February 6th, and indeed, it's still Science Friday. Coming up, we'll talk with researchers trying to decode the role of various colors and patterns as signals in the animal world including how a tiny striped cape can affect the behavior of jumping spiders. But first, we go into the forests of Ecuador to meet a newly discovered tarantula. Here's Ira with sci-fi producer Rasha Aridi. Hi, Rasha. Hey, Ira. Yeah, so this critter is small, it's pretty fuzzy, and it's kind of shy. Are we playing 20 questions here? Yes, actually. Um, How about a hint? It has really cute eyes. Eight of them, in fact. Cute eyes, that magic number eight. It's fuzzy, so I'm guessing it's not not an octopus. It's not an octopus for once, actually. (laughs) I'm talking about tarantulas, everybody's favorite critter, or so I would like to believe. Especially if you're James Bond, but that's another story. Rasha, take it away. Spider scientists in Quito, Ecuador, are on a mission to find and describe new species of tarantulas that live all over Ecuador. In a recent study, they described two species that are brand new to science, including one that's affectionately named the Satan spider. I spoke with the authors of the spidery study, researchers at the Miglamorfe Research Group at the University of San Francisco in Quito, Ecuador. Pedro Peñarera is the founder of the group, and Roberto José León is a biology student and group member. Roberto and Pedro, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So, Roberto, I'm really intrigued by this Satan spider that you recently described. How did it even get its name? All right, so the spider was originally in this, like, bamboo uh, fence thing. And we started digging, like, chopping out pieces of bamboo so that we can get the spider. And instead of just crawling out and running away, like most spiders would do, the spider just decided it would fling itself onto whatever was there. And spiders have really poor vision, so it it definitely had no idea where it, what it was jumping to. <laughs> but it jumped directly at uh, one of my friends' chest. <laughs> um, and it was quite funny. 
That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So after you caught this tarantula, you brought it back to the lab. How do you go about classifying it? There's basically three different ways that you can classify a new species. You can either have morphological characteristics, which are basically the features of its body and uh, how its body functions, its physiology and all of these different aspects. You have the genetic aspects based on the amount of mutations and differences to other spiders in certain genes. Uh, you could classify as different species as belonging to different uh, lineages. Then there is basically the ecological uh, aspect of this, where you can differentiate two species by several different ecological characteristics. One of the main would be basically arboreal spiders have hairier feet because they use these feet, these little uh, hair-like structures to stick onto things. So arboreal spiders not only have this different ecological like niche they have to fill in, and they also have these structures that follow this niche. And we use all three of those things to determine if that spider is or isn't a new species. So this very special Satan spider that you found, what characteristics did it have that was special? When, when we use these morphological characteristics, we uh, tend to use the lock and key hypothesis. You can basically infer whether something is or isn't a new species if you have the male and female of that species. And you can tell because of the characteristics of the reproductive organs. It basically states that the male reproductive organ is kind of like tailored for the female reproductive organ of that species. So uh, you wouldn't have two different species that have exactly the same uh, reproductive morphology. It's one of the, the things that we use in our paper. That's so cool. Yeah, it's cool. So can you tell me, I mean, why do you bother looking for tarantulas in the first place? What do you want to know about them? Okay, so first we want to see the diversity of tarantulas. With this, we can get more uh, elaborated studies, for example, evolutionary studies uh, that we can relate geographical uh, processes, for example, the creation of the Andes, other concerns about uh, conservation. And for example, it could be great if we, in the future, we can see a reserve, a natural reserve that could be created based on the protection of a tarantula or any spider or even any insect. The main reason to look for tarantulas in our case is to start like the base knowledge and lead to future generations or future studies that we could make possible. This base knowledge is basically because in most places, like, like let's say, for example, in the United States, there's a lot of research already like recording what species are where. I think it is quite more rare uh, to have a new species in the U.S. than it is in countries like Ecuador or Colombia or Peru. We, we started doing this because we had no idea what was even here. We knew that there was tarantulas, but no one knew what they were. And if you don't know what there is in an ecosystem, you're going to struggle trying to conserve it. Uh, so basically, our, our research is aimed to understanding and actually classifying this diversity that we know is there, uh, but that no one has ever done before. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the threats to tarantulas? Is there anything that you're concerned about? Major threats... Uh that we saw like in our field work was mining and also agricultural activities. Basically, uh, here in Ecuador, uh, mining is, is present in most of the cordilleras and also the creeks that uh, come from the, the Andes. 
So everything that could pollute like uh, water sources uh, up from the Andes could be affected by the mining activity that is in the Andes. So uh, affect the populations of tarantulas. In the other way, the agricultural activities change everything in the land. So there's a high possibility that the tarantulas could be specific to microecosystems. So the, there are these microhabitats with specific uh, conditions that could be destroyed. Another threat that we was about pet trade. So Ecuador have have a large history about uh, illegal pet trade, also poachers that comes from other places of the world to get a specific animal that looks very, very nice and they want to keep them in their private collections. Uh, but they don't care about the stability of the ecosystems or the stability of the, of the population of the tarantula. As long as there's a demand for these spiders, uh, there will always be these poachers that basically they see this new publication, oh, what a shiny blue tarantula, I'm going to go get it in Ecuador and make a lot of money. That's one of the biggest uh, issues that, that we haven't really seen, but we know happen because we've been in many places in Ecuador, but I don't think we've ever seen a tarantula poacher. Despite that, it's one of the biggest threats and it's one of the hardest to regulate for the same reason. Right. Lots of people hate tarantulas or are really, really scared of them. What do you want them to know? What would you say to them? In reality, um, despite them, some of them having names like Satanás and the Satan spider, <laughs> I would love to reiterate that this spider had an amazing personality. This spider really was quite charismatic. It was quite nice to be around. And we we named the species after him because we, we grew really fond of him. And um, there's more to them than uh, most people would think. Most spiders can have quite distinguished personalities, even in the same species. And it's, it's quite like human personalities. Let's say there's this other spider we named it, Gladys. And Gladys basically doesn't really care about anything. You could be poking it, it would not carry, it would not move. It's there as long as it is, it is in food, it is completely and absolutely indifferent to it. And I think I have quite a few <laughs> friends that don't really care. Well, thank you both so much for, for being here and sharing your spider stories with us. I'm, I'm happy we could, we could be part of this. Thank you very much. Thanks. Pedro Peñarrera and Roberto Jose Leon are researchers at the Miglamorfe Research Group at the University of San Francisco in Quito, Ecuador. If you want to check out photos of these beautiful tarantulas, go to sciencefriday.com slash spider. I'm Rasha Aridi. What a cool story. Thank you, Rasha. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org slash WNYC for more information. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, 
I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story is about putting tiny capes on the back of termites. Now, I know this sounds a bit crazy, but but stay with me on this, okay? Scientists are trying to decode the importance of signals like colors and patterns in the animal kingdom. So let's say you're a spider, a fuzzy jumping spider looking for a meal. Which succulent termite, let's say, looks the tastiest? Researchers at the University of Florida turned to applying tiny striped capes to the backs of termites to study how those stripes affected the behavior of hungry jumping spiders. That's the premise. Here's the explanation presented by Dr. Lisa Taylor, behavioral ecologist in the Entomology and Nematology Department, University of Florida in Gainesville, and Dr. Lauren Govel, the lead undergraduate researcher on this project, who is now a veterinary intern in the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I'm really excited. Oh, nice to have you. Okay, Lauren, why put a cape on a termite? <laughs> Besides the fact that it's absolutely adorable. Um, <laughs> in order to do this study, we were looking at if these jumping spiders would have the same reactions to what we call aposematic patterns in the wild or aposematic displays. So by aposematic, you mean it, it's a warning symbol? To predators. Exactly. Something like the color red is one that we think of a lot in the wild where an animal will see the color red and think danger. I should not eat that. I should go turn the other way. Black and white is another one of those things. So if you think of a skunk, you definitely don't want to mess with one of those. Um, and those colorations are kind of a big glaring way to get your attention and make sure that you know that right off the bat. So we wanted to test that sort of display in spiders their best prey that we can give them in the lab is termites which don't necessarily have any of these colorations naturally and so in order to provide different colorations in a controlled setting what's been done in the past and what we did for our study is to put little paper patterned capes onto them Dr. Taylor, you study colors as communication and signals in spiders and other species. What is this telling you? Yeah, so we can learn a lot from these experiments because if you just kind of go out in the natural world, you see all these colors and patterns. And for me anyway, it just makes me wonder, like, what is this all about? What are all these colors and patterns doing? And we've learned a lot from these types of experiments with birds, for example, where a lot of things we've learned so far suggest that there are certain colors and patterns that are just really good at warning of toxicity, like red and black and white stripes, these things kind of jump out to predators are really obvious. And so predators either have innate aversions to these colors and patterns, or they can easily remember these colors and patterns. So if they attack something that's red or black and white striped, and it tastes bad, those colors and patterns are really memorable. And so I've just always been really interested in trying to understand why animals have all these colors and patterns and why they work why some work better than others, and what predators are directed towards. So we know that a lot of them are effective with birds, but we know a lot less about other predators that are really common out there, like these tiny jumping spiders. 
Very interesting. Now, Lauren, I have to ask you, how do you put a cape on a termite? And don't tell me very difficultly. Um, House very carefully then. So the actual process, there's a little bit of trial and error, not going to lie. Some termites were sacrificed for the greater good of me figuring out the best way to do this. But literally, I just took the smallest drop of Elmer's glue possible and put it on this little paper cape and figured out the best amount of force to lay it on top of the termite's back for it to stick and not squish the poor little termite and not overwhelm it completely with too much glue. I eventually figured out the right ratio for the glue and the amount of force and placed many, many, many of those capes. Dr. Taylor, can you give me uh, some examples of insects that have these warning stripes when they're not wearing tiny glued-on capes? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. So these are really common in nature. So stripes in particular, um, some of the most common things you might think of are like monarch caterpillars. So they're black and white stripes, and they also have a little bit of yellow. There's a lot of caterpillars that have black and white stripes. A lot of butterflies and moths have black and white striping on them. That's you know pretty obvious to predators. And those are those are you know, relatively large insects. So those are probably trying to communicate with larger animals like birds. So what I think is really interesting is there's a lot of really, really tiny insects that have black and white stripes, like the tiniest little baby monarch caterpillars are a good example. But then also there's like these little tree hoppers that have black and white stripes. There's some little plant hoppers that have black and white stripes. And there's even this really cool insect called the harlequin bug that lays these really tiny black and white striped eggs that are thought to be chemically defended. And so all those things we think are warning that they're toxic, but they're really tiny. So they're probably not warning birds. They're probably warning something smaller, like jumping spiders. Wow. Okay. So Lauren, drum roll, please. What happened? Did the stripes make the termites unattractive to the spiders? Yeah. So ultimately, the stripes are, are bold and brash and attention getting. So in the first part of our study, we did find that the spiders oriented to or kind of faced and looked at the termites with the black and white striped capes first. And then when they were allowed into the same area as the termites, despite the fact that they had oriented to those striped caped termites first, they often decided not to attack those and to attack one of the solid colored caped termites um, instead. Dr. Taylor, what would you need to take this further if you had a blank check, which of course I have for you? Uh, <laughs> what would what would you do? Well, we're really excited that you have a blank check for us. That sounds great. Um, <laughs> it's in the mail. One thing that I think would be really fun would be um, for the blank check would be to to create the equivalent of really tiny GoPros to put on these spiders and GPS trackers because. We can do all these really interesting experiments in the lab and kind of understand how they make decisions in these different contexts that we put them in. But I would really love to just be able to see more like what their world is like in the field. We catch these spiders in the field and we've tracked them. We can kind of track them pretty easily, but, um, you know, they'll dart under the leaf litter and hide from us occasionally. So I'd really like to know where they go, how many other spiders they encounter, what the possible prey items are that they encounter, where they sleep and just kind of what the day in the life of a jumping spider is. Mm -hmm. All good questions, and I want to thank both of you. We've run out of time. Dr. Lisa Taylor, behavioral ecologist in the entomology and nematology department 
That's at the University of Florida. And Lauren Govel, she was the lead undergraduate researcher on the project, but is now a veterinary intern in the Tufts Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Thank you so much. This was great. That's all the time we have for today. Tomorrow, a CRISPR gene editing technique has been approved for treating sickle cell disease. But what diseases and conditions might come next? I'm sci-fi producer Charles Berquist. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.